Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. Molly here. Today, Vera interviews Dr. Vanessa Sperandio. And before we get to that interview, I just want to remind you that if you haven't yet joined Vera's Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life, I'm Sweet Enough, be sure to head on over to Facebook and do that now. Also consider picking up a copy of her book, Food Junkies, which you can find on Audible or anywhere that you can find your books online or in person. Okay. In this interview, listen for Dr. Sperandino's personal and professional journey. They're going to talk about the gut brain access, our relationship with bacteria, neurotransmitters, microbiome imbalance, nutritional therapy interventions, processed food in our guts, how to eat our eat for our gut microbiome, supplements and probiotics, and psychedelics, microbiome, and addiction. Take it away, Vera. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today, speaking with a researcher of the gut microbiome, Dr. Vanessa Sperandio. Vanessa Sperandio, PhD, is a Robert Terrell Professor and Chair of Medical Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. She earned her bachelor's, master's, and PhD at the University of Campinas in Brazil, and then her postdoctoral training at the School of Medicine in University of Maryland. In 2013, she became a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology. She currently serves on the editorial boards of a number of academic journals, M-Bio, Infection and Immunity, Journal of Bacteriology, and Gut Pathogens. Dr. Sperandio's research investigates how neurochemical stress and nutrition can signal across our bodies, specifically the beneficial gut microbiota and other bacterial pathogens that exist within us. Her main focus is on how bacteria sense and work with our hormones and how they can actually lead to a rewiring and reprogramming of our neurochemistry that can then affect our physical and mental health. We at Food Junkies are especially interested in the role of the gut bacteria in food cravings and food addiction. How does the gut bacteria interplay with our neurochemistry and hunger hormones to contribute to the drug-seeking behavior associated with sugar and processed foods? We wonder, can understanding the role of the gut microbiome help us find better treatment for food addiction, either through specific diet or even an antimicrobial therapy? Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you. We always like to start with the personal uh, information. How did you get interested in the whole work of the gut microbiome and its, especially its neurological interplay? So this started through serendipity, as most science goes. I was trained as a microbial, uh, working with microbial pathogens, gut pathogens, and how they cause disease. And then Many, many years ago, even before microbiome was ever thought about, we realized that there was something in the microbiome, uh, some chemical the microbiome was making that was telling pathogens where they were. And those pathogens were interpreting that 
towards basically turning on all of their virulence repertoire, all of their mammentarium to cause disease in the gut. And we realized then that there was a very similar chemical coming from the host too, and it turned out to be adrenaline and not adrenaline, which are pretty prevalent in the gut that could also cross talk with that. And that's how this whole thing started, like way more than 25 years ago. Yeah, because the microbiome, I mean, we're, it's the talk of the town now, like maybe the last five years, but you were involved, like you said, 25 years ago, like quite a long time ago. Yes, actually, 25 years ago, nobody thought about that. And uh, they, people were very reticent uh, to believe that the microbes in your gut were doing anything, let alone, you know, interacting with a pathogen or the host themselves. For our listeners, most of us know that the gut is full of gut bacteria, but the main job is to digest the food that we eat. But of late, we've been talking about the interplay between not just digestion, but the brain. So there's, there's this interplay between the gut and the brain. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the thing is, a lot of the, the, the brain signals that we have, so we, we have this big connection between the brain and the gut, which is the enteric nervous system. So that's the gut-brain axis that you hear so much about because you have a lot of nerves in your intestine. That's why you have that gut feeling, right? And these nerves send a lot of these neurochemicals similar to the ones you have in your brain in the intestine. In fact, a lot of the things that we associate with uh, being neurochemicals are actually produced 95% of them in the in the gut, not in the brain, like things like serotonin. Okay, so you go running and you feel happy. Serotonin is your happy, you know, neurochemical. And that's something that controls food intake and the necessity to eat and also mood and sleep. So serotonin, 95% of it is produced in the gut, not in the brain. Yeah, I find that very interesting. So the gut is a type of brain then because it's creating its own neurochemistry. Yes, it does. And then there is this communication between the gut and the brain that goes both ways, right? Yeah. And it turns out that we're very anthropomorphic, right? We think about human beings coming first on everything when, in fact, bacteria have been on Earth 3.5 billion years and we haven't. Uh -huh. So the chemistry itself is not that different. So they have chemicals are very similar to ours and the gut bacteria chemistry yes just bacteria chemistry at large and so for example similar to serotonin you have something called endo that bacteria make in the gut yeah that actually crosses the the intestine it goes all the way to your brain okay and chemically very similar to serotonin so it's not very surprising that you would be able to recognize them and that they are able to recognize the neurochemicals that we make right. because they're very similar in, in structure. So that would mean that if you're eating something that, that makes you feel good, the way that I've always interpreted that is that we're eating it, the information goes from the gut to the brain, and then there I get that feeling of happy. But you're saying it's already happening in the gut, that good feeling, because the serotonin is being produced there. It's being produced there, and then it gets absorbed and goes to your brain. And things that bacteria make, like Kindle, which are very similar, are also being produced there, and it goes all the way 
to your brain too. Yeah. So this is a silly question, but it, when you said that the gut have a lot of the same neurochemistry that we do, would that mean that that actual bacteria can be happy as, as well? Like, do they also have that feeling of um, pleasure and contentment? Well, <laughs> to find that I'm a little careful about giving feelings to bacteria because they are unicellular organisms. Okay. But, uh, they, it does alter their behavior, uh, in terms of like adapting. They kind of use that to gauge where they are. Okay. Yeah. If you think about the intestine, it's packed full with bacteria. It's really, really crowded. Okay. And what they want is to find a little place like us to live and eat and exist, right? Like any organism. And they do that by trying to read that chemistry precisely and rewire themselves to basically take advantage of the, the way that metabolically that would make sense for them. So they don't compete head to head with somebody and basically lose it and try to coexist. So that's basically what happens in the gut. But they're seeking to survive. Uh, and so in yeah. that seeking to survive, somehow I'm guessing that they um, send a message to me, the host that's hosting them. They're coexisting with us. And so they have to send some message which to my brain, which will benefit them, correct? Yes, they do send several messages that end up in your brain. For example, they will send indo to your brain, which looks like serotonin. They will send, and this is in its infancy because now we have the technology to actually look into that because dealing with this chemistry is a little bit complicated, but they will send several chemicals that look like something that you make that can go to your brain and alter not only your brain, but they can also alter your cells. They can alter the permeability of your intestine, for example. So right. to make it a good barrier or make it more leaky, for example. Before we get to leaky gut, because I do want to talk about that for sure. So if they're trying to coexist and they send a message, it would be to their benefit that we like that message so that we will continue to let them thrive in our gut. Yeah. So what happens is people have this idea that bacteria are bad, right? Yes. And that's not true. Actually, they're very, very good. And we are symbionts with them. We can't exist without them and they can't, ex and well, they can exist without us, but we cannot exist without them. For example, if you eat a potato, it would mean nothing to you if you didn't have bacteria in your gut to break it down to glucose for you. Okay. You wouldn't be able to process that. Uh -huh. So, and there is like a thousand more bacteria in your body in terms of cells than you have your own. So you're basically a big incubator and it's very good for you. And most of them are there to help you. And we live in symbiosis. We exchange this. Yeah. And it's a nice equilibrium. But what makes the press is when you have bad bacteria, pathogens that cause disease, right? But those are exceptions to the rules. And I think about pathogens as the teenagers of the bacterial world. If you actually look at when they started to exist, they're all young. They basically started to exist very recently and they quite don't know what to handle. They're trying to figure out how to handle the host. Okay. So instead of taking you to a nice dinner, they take you to McDonald's type of thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they're basically very, they're the teenagers. And as they go on, okay. As evolution happens, they become less pathogenic. So the most aggressive ones are young. And 
it makes no sense to kill or harm your hosts, right? Right. So the evolution works towards make you okay. Yes. And the fact that the foods that we're eating today are the one, the processed food, which is essentially killing us. I guess you could say that the bacteria haven't learned yet to adapt or the ones that are adapting are still in that teenage stage. They haven't yet learned how to properly respond to the insult of the processed foods. So it's not just the processed foods, okay? Evolution is going to happen doesn't matter what you do. Yes. Okay? And especially with um, globalization and climate change and everything that we're happening, that's happening, we're having different species of animals in close contact with each other that would never have been in contact with each other before. Right, of course. So that's when pathogens jump. And when they make the jump to a new host, they are, it's new. They don't know what to do with that. Okay. That's like COVID. That's COVID. That's HIV. That's salmonella. That's E. coli that causes diarrhea. That's Campylobacter. Campylobacter loves chickens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's happy with chickens. It doesn't want to be on you. Uh, You're in the middle of the way. Most of the times we're in the middle of the way. And, and that's when they, they, you get in trouble. Okay. Like cholera likes to live on plankton. You just turn out to be in the middle of the plankton. <laughs> um, you mentioned um, serotonin. So what other uh, neurochemicals are affected by our gut bacteria? So we have a very strong interplay with all neurochemicals because a lot of the neurochemicals that you have are excreted through the gut to get out of your system. And your liver modifies them in a way to deactivate them. And the bacteria that are part of your microbiota have enzymes that basically cut that deactivation out and reactivate them in the gut. And that's true for serotonin. That's true for adrenaline or adrenaline endocannabinoids, which you make and you have several of them. And bacteria can recognize all of those and change their behavior towards that to basically figure out where they are. And at the same time, they are making sure that they are deactivated in the gut, that they are activated again in the gut so they can actually sense them. Uh -huh. So you have all of this chemistry going on there with all of these neurochemicals and your microbiota is like key to ensure that that's going on. Not only that, but the, the microbiota also make your cells make more or less of those chemicals. They can program your cells to make more or less of that. In a sense that they moderate the effect of those neurochemicals by decreasing or enhancing the supply of them or yes. activating or proactivating them. Yes. And they're doing it for the intention for their own survival, but it has an impact on us. Is that a correct assumption? It, it does have an impact on us and it does have an impact on addiction. For example, it's all about chemistry, right? So if you have an imbalance in your microbiome, okay, so the general feeling of your microbiome, microbiome is a very unique to each individual. It's like a fingerprint. But there is uh, at the phyla level, which is like the big level of microbes, you basically have three main phyla, okay? Bacteroides, Clostridium, yes. and Proteobacteria, which is E. coli, okay? And you should have a lot of Clostridium and Bacteroides and very little Proteobacteria, which is E. coli. Okay, okay. that's the norm. That's how a normal human being looks like. Do the three again. There's Bacteroides, Clostridium, 
Firmicutes, sorry, firmicutes, which is Clostridium, yep. and proteobacteria, which is mostly your E. coli. I've seen research about that saying that Bacteroides and firmicutes, that they can, depending on what abundance you have of one of those, they can determine body size, like uh, the predisposition to being overweight or not. Yes, they can, because they can actually change transcription, they, they can actually change expression of genes in your cells that can make you more or less fat. They, in addition to breaking up foods, like the, the reason you're able to eat fibers and get something out of fibers or potatoes or anything like that, because bacterioides spends a lot of energy breaking those things down. Okay. That's why they're the majority of your gut. So, and usually you get an imbalance. So with E. coli, you want them to be just a little bit of that. But if they bloom, that's usually when you get a little bit in trouble. Yeah. And uh, for example, in the case of addiction, so psychoactive drugs like cocaine, for example. Yes. They increase the amount of noradrenaline that you make, not only in your brain, but also in your gut. When you have an increase in noradrenaline, E. coli loves to read that as like, woo, let me colonize. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. So interesting. And does that mean that you said that there's an individual fingerprint that we each have? And if somebody has more of that E. coli, they're more susceptible to the effect of cocaine? Yes, they are. Wow. So, and what happens is if you, be, it's kind of like a looping thing, right? Yeah. So. Cocaine will make more noradrenaline in the guts. That will make E. coli colonize and grow. Yeah. Okay. And when that happens, E. coli loves to use this amino acid called glycine in your gut, okay, to yeah. eat. When it does that, it diminishes the amount of glycine you have in the gut, and that diminishes the amount of glycine you have systemically all the way to your brain. And glycine is actually one neurochemical that controls a lot of the addiction phenotypes that you have. So when you have a lot of E. coli, they eat the glycine, you have less glycine in the gut and the brain, and that basically increases all of the addiction behaviors. Deficiency of glycine because of the E. coli might be uh, creating some of that food craving behavior that people have or drug-seeking behavior? It does for cocaine. Yes. Well, what about sugar? Because we, we've often said, like we know the research that says rats choose cocaine over sugar. So does so, it have the same impact? We don't know about sugar yet because uh, we actually have to train them to seek cocaine with sugar first. <laughs> That's how you train them to go for the cocaine. You train them with sugar, start giving them cocaine, <laughs> they go ah. for the cocaine. Okay, but the, the wires are a little bit different depending on which addiction that you have. But at least in terms, and with addiction, I think there is a lot of correlation out there, but we're finally getting to what you call mechanism to try to pinpoint one situation and one chemical that you can modify. And in this case, it's E. coli and glycine. Yes. And you can correct that. For example, you just have to give glycine back for the animals. The drug-seeking behavior can be resolved with the glycine. Yes. And the beauty of that is not just glycine. Because glycine is made out of sarcosine. And sarcosine is a food supplement. So if you go to GNC, uh -huh. a lot of athletes take sarcosine to build muscle. Yes. And sarcosine, your body makes it into glycine like that. And you can correct this with glycine or sarcosine. That's essentially a nutritional therapy that we could yes. use in our addiction treatment. Yes. And uh, the situation, at least with things like cocaine or amphetamine, is in the same class as cocaine as a drug because it's like a psychoactive makes you high yes. and, and very 
uh, how do I say, very active, those two, they basically can be corrected with something like cyclozine, which you can go to GNC and get it. Yeah. And there is, to this day, no treatment because for alcoholism, for opioids, you have pharmaceuticals that you can use to tamp that down. But for the psychoactive drugs, you don't. And food is also an addiction, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's a matter of mapping the wiring of what's going on with food, similar to drugs, because everything, even gambling is, is a chemical addiction in the end. Gambling is, you know, it's dopaminergic and it is a stimulating. So yes. even though the research doesn't actually pinpoint gambling to the glycine, we could make the supposition that it's worth trying. Uh, yeah, but I would say before you try it better to, well, sarcosine is like, it's not something toxic or anything. So yeah, yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's just a supplement. It's nothing dangerous. But yeah, it could be. Okay. What about other relationships and drugs? We're starting to look into that because, uh, how can I say, the, the whole addiction field with the microbiome is in its infancy. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of the reason for that, there is a lot of correlation. So people will just say, oh, you have more of this and then that's what happens. But it's hard to, to make sense of that. So you actually have to get to a point in which you understand what's going on. Like in the case of the glycine thing, yes. like this is why, yes. okay, it's this chemical that's changing this signaling in the brain that's making you do this and we can correct it using this specific thing. So the field is finally moving towards that. And the reason why it's been a little bit stuck in correlations is because to actually make this jump, you need people with different expertises working together. And uh, scientists from different expertises sometimes don't communicate very well. Uh -huh. Okay, so you need uh, a neuroscientist who understands how the brain works and addiction, working together with a microbiologist who understands you know, how bacteria behave. And you also need a chemist in the middle of the way to give you, you know, a, a reading of the chemistry of what's going on. So when you have this multidisciplinary situation in which you have people from different fields that can actually really work together, that's when you actually get to, to the mechanism. And I think we're finally getting to that point right now in which people are realizing that they're going to have to go across fields and communicate with each other to get to where they need to go. What can you tell us? What do we know now about, because you said we have our own endocannabinoids and that the gut have its relationship with that. So tell us what you know about that. So with endocannabinoids, what we know about that is like, for example, I just told you that adrenaline kind of makes, adrenaline makes pathogen, pathogens learn to read adrenaline as a signal to turn on in all of their virulence and become really bad for you. Ah. Okay, and the same receptor that they use to sense adrenaline in your body, it's also sensed in the cannabinoids. Adrenaline will create more virulence. Yes, so that's, it does. That's an example of how stress, which creates adrenaline, creates a distress in our gut. Yes. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go, go back to the endocannabinoid. You were okay, saying. so the same receptor the bacteria has that senses adrenaline and turn yeah. on everything bad, okay, also senses endocannabinoids. But the endocannabinoids competes with adrenaline there. So you have more endocannabinoids in your gut, you're less susceptible to pathogens. It kind of calms them down, which is kind of how this uh, neurotransmitters work in your gut. 
okay, and in your system. So endocannabinoids will diminish inflammation. It will make you kind of happier, okay, while adrenaline is a stressful and it's not something very healthy for you. And it works pretty similarly in bacteria in the same way. So if you have a lot of endocannabinoids, it shuts down all of these pathogens. So you become less susceptible to diarrhea from E. coli, from salmonella, because it shuts them down. We're talking about our own natural system, yes. about external. So how can we feed our endocannabinoid system? Is that also E. coli or is that the other two that you were talking about, bacteroides? and? So it's known that some bacteria can actually change the amount of endocannabinoids that you have. So I think it has to do a little bit with the kind of microbiota that you have, where you, whether you have more or less. Yes. And the endocannabinoid system is actually, again, really important in your intestine. A lot of that's done in there. Uh-huh. Okay. When it comes from plant exocannabinoids, then it's a different story because it's hard to say because you have two of them. So you have THC. Yes. And you have uh, CBD. Okay. And it's hard to say because, for example, CBD, it doesn't give you any of the the highs that THC does and it's FDA approved, whatever. Yeah. But CBD uh, has a lot of off-target things, so it's hard to say how it really works. Uh-huh. THC will actually work in the same receptor that your endocannabinoids do, but it has all of the other side effects, yeah. right? Yeah. So at this point, it's hard to say, but there is anecdotal stuff out there, okay? So, for example, people who have IBS, okay, inflammatory bowel syndrome, yeah. uh, which is very common nowadays. Uh, so these people have imbalances in their microbiome. It's a very complicated disease. And anecdotally, they feel better if they smoke pot. Pot has both of them, both CBD and THC, right? Yeah, right. There is also one interesting study in the 70s in Baltimore in which they were looking at diarrhea caused by bacteria in different human volunteers. And they noted then that the heavy marijuana users had less diarrhea than the ones that didn't use it. Uh-huh. Okay, so it could be at some point, but there is not, you know, hard data on any of that. And there is a lot of work that has to be done to kind of figure out if that's really what's going on. The mechanism for your endocannabinoids, you know, yeah. okay, but but for the, the plant ones, it's still unclear. Right. Well, one thing we do know with the plant ones, the external cannabinoids, is that it can cause, in some cases, nausea and vomiting. And it certainly can cause a big appetite. So is it feeding the, the gut bacteria in such a, like that drug craving? When people are smoking pot, they don't just want to eat a lot. They want to eat a lot of junk food. So it's it's creating drug-seeking behavior of food, wouldn't you say? It does. But the thing is, it's hard to separate the chicken and the egg, okay? Because the plant ones are acting on your receptors in the gut, will turn your behavior towards that. Yes. Okay? And they are also altering how bacteria behaves. So you need to separate them to be able to see which one is the strongest one of them. Let's just go back to the basics of the endocannabinoid and the gut bacteria. You said that it acts to suppress. Can you elaborate more on that? What are the gut doing with the endocannabinoid system? So in your gut, so the endocannabinoid system, your own cannabinoid system, yes, was discovered because people were trying to find out how do you respond to the plant ones. Yes. Okay. 
So that was, uh, I'd say that was figured out in the 90s, which is not that long ago for science in general, yeah. especially when you want to get to something that you understand better. So then they figure out that, hey, you don't have these receptors to respond to plants, right? You must make something that you respond to, which is your own. And your own endocannabinoids in the gut. So they change appetite, okay? So they will enhance your appetite. Yes. They will increase inflammation, okay? They will gen their general going to calm down everything, okay, in your gut. It's that signaling between the gut bacteria and the endocannabinoid system, there's a signaling that creates this effect. Yeah, your endocannabinoids will signal to your own receptor. You make them. Yeah. Okay. And it will also signal to the bacteria and calm them down. Ah. Okay. So, for example, if you get a salmonella infection and you have more endocannabinoids than I do, chances are it's going to be less pathogenic for you than it is for me. At least that's what we can see when we do animal models of that. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Molly Veer and I are so excited to share our upcoming Sweet Sobriety Special Speaker and Workshop Extravaganza with you. This four-day food addiction conference is going to be the recovery retreat you just can't beat as Sweet Sobriety takes over Toronto. Friday, we're going to have a special Sweet Sobriety Soiree. This will be an exclusive event for our Sweet Sobriety group coaching members to hang out with your Food Junkies team. And this will run from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. We have Sensational Saturday at the Residence and Conference Center in downtown Toronto at 80 Cooper Street. That day, we'll have Sandra Ilya speaking on aligning your sales to recovery, thinking action words, Sophie Rowland will speak on insulin resistance in the brain, how it affects our eating behaviors. Dr. Evelyn Roy will share how to level up your metabolic health and food addiction recovery. Our own Dr. Vera Tarman will be speaking on, am I abstinent enough? Besides sugar, let's explore alcohol and cannabis. And finally, Dr. Amy Reichelt will be speaking on the neuroscience of sugar and food addiction. On Super Speaker Sunday, the workshops will be held at the 519 Community Center Ballroom. On Sunday, we'll have Pamela McCoos speak on getting into the readiness mindset. Jennifer Lindo Crank will be speaking on turning information into transformation, all about neuroplasticity. Rachel Murray will be speaking on craving control, navigating the complex relationship between women's hormones and sugar. And finally, Victoria Hamill will be speaking and doing a group hypnotherapy session for a recovery mindset. On Maintenance Monday, we will start with group coaching, then we'll have a workshop from Cynthia and she'll be doing the genogram. Then we're going to have a group activity in the afternoon called Mindful Art Practice and this will be hosted by our own Deb Reynolds. And then it will be followed by an Enneagram workshop with Bethany Mazaru. And finally, we're going to finish the day with somatic experiencing with me. And finally, on our last day, Treatment Tuesday, we're going to do some group coaching. Molly Painshop will be teaching on adaptive coping mechanisms. We're going to have a workshop on breaking stuff. And uh, then we're going to wrap up the day with a workshop on courage, commitment, and change that Clarissa, Molly, and Bethany will be hosting. And then our Ask Us Anything, get to know your hosts, Bethany, Clarissa, Molly. 
So 5 p.m., we're going to do our closing ceremonies. And where is all this all held? In Toronto, Canada. When? October 21st to 24th. And the cost is $150 U.S. for individual event days and $4.99 U.S. for the entire recovery retreat. Can't wait to see you there. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. You've talked about serotonin. What about the opioid system? Can you say anything about that with the gut? Uh, so there is, amazingly enough, there is not that much done on it. Okay. Um, but we have opioid receptors in the gut too. We do. Yes, we do. And there are some there are some papers published that depending on the composition of your microbiota, it can change your addiction behaviors towards opioids. In terms of opioids, the problem is it's in the correlation phase. Yes. Okay. Which is hard to say much about it because, yeah. you know, you get a cohort of people and people who, so people who are on opioids and are addicted, they're going to have a screwed up microbiota. It doesn't matter what, because they're going, their diet's not going to be great. Huh. We all know that, right? So what's what? So it's hard to just like sequence what's in there and say, hey, people who are addicted to opioids have less or this or more, more of that. But is that what's driving the addiction or is that because their diet's all screwed up? So, and I say there's a lot of regulation to work with all of these things and a ton of paperwork I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. And opioids are in a class that's even more complicated than say marijuana or cocaine. So it's, it gets people to shy away a little bit. Do we have anything yet that we can uh, conclude or strongly suggest about just the processed food industry that's relatively new? So the thing with the processed food industry, the situation is there is a lot of chemicals that are used to ensure that your food is not being spoiled, okay? Because the, the reason they process food is to keep it in the supermarket. You have a lot of chemicals in there, for example, a real watermelon will go bad in two days, right? It's amazing that you go to the supermarket, you buy a watermelon, and a week later, it's still okay in your fridge. Wow. It's not just the bacteria, but it, it's the bacteria and everything else. So they, yeah. they put a lot of chemicals in there, right. chemicals that your body is not necessarily able to process very well. So process, but, but it's like, it's a problem. How do we feed the world, right? Because uh, if you let everything be extremely organic, okay, which would be the best situation for you, Okay, your food production is going to be very low. Yeah. And you're not going to be able to feed the world with that, not with our population going up like we do. So it's the, it's the devil in the thing, right? So you want to feed the world, but at the same time to do that, you're going to have to put a lot of chemicals into the food to be able to make it stay okay for a longer period of time. You also have to use a lot of chemicals in agriculture or how you raise your animals to make sure that you have enough production to feed the world. Okay. But that makes food cheaper and you make more, but at the same time, it's not as healthy as it is, but how many people can actually afford real organic food? But what, what is it doing to our gut uh, bacteria? Well, the processed stuff is going to, so you're, you're bringing in chemicals that you normally wouldn't see. Okay, so yes, it's going to change your bacterial flora. So, for example, a Western diet. 
say like full of hamburgers and things like that, it will change you in a way that will make your gut more leaky. Uh, that's why a lot of people have IBS and IBD. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's talk about leaky gut. I wanted to come back to that. Yeah. yeah. So if you are, however, in a diet that you have more fibers, less processed fibers, okay? You want more fibers and less processed sugars, okay? Because you were not born to eat sugar that you can absorb right away, mm-hmm. okay? You evolved through millions of years to have bacteria in your gut that are working towards breaking the sugar for you. So when you just have like pure glucose, which is what processed food has it, okay, you absorb it directly and then that's how you gain a lot of weight. And then you actually lose the bacteria in your gut that whose job is to, to break that down. And that's why some bacteria are more favorable to obesity. Yes. Yeah. So for example, if you have, so one of your, one of your healthy bacteria is bacteroides, which is the majority. Okay. Yeah. And the reason you evolved with it is because its job is to break up food for you, complex foods, complex uh, sugars, complex fibers. But if you just eat pure sugar, it doesn't have a reason to exist in there. And then bacteria such as like E. coli, who shouldn't be the majority and cannot break that down and love that stuff, they bloom. Right. How does that that lead to obesity? That can lead to obesity because on top of that, like all of this bacteria in your gut, on top of like changing how you absorb directly the sugar, they can actually program your cells to become more or less, to make more or less glucose, to make you more or less glucose tolerant. Right. Okay. And that's where you get obesity. So for example, if you get the microbiota from an obese mouse and you get the microbiota to a skinny mouse, the skinny mouse becomes obese and vice versa. So you can actually transplant things like that, at least in animals. Okay. In humans, everything's more complicated. But uh, at least in animals, it can be seen. And it's because the enzymes in your body that make you process how, how you make fat cells, how you use sugar, how much insulin you make, how resistant or not you are to insulin, they're all coming. They, they can all be programmed by the bacteria in your gut. That's amazing. So you mentioned uh, the, like the concept of fecal implants. Is that actually something, I know it sounds really unpleasant, but is that something actually that researchers are looking into as a cure for obesity to actually transplant like we do with... Australian. Yeah. 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 So there, there is a, a ton of work uh-huh. with, um, that's actually a field that's booming and they're going to see a lot of it and they're uh-huh. getting very mechanistic now which is the field of obesity and microbiota. Yes. Food intake and microbiota and how certain diets actually give you the best microbiota. So most, I I think most scientists would agree that like a Mediterranean type of uh, diet is probably the best one that you can have. Yeah. Because it has lots of fibers, not too much processed uh, sugar and not too much carbohydrates compared to the level of proteins. So keto diets can be a little complicated in my mind because to have a keto diet, you're going totally off carbohydrates and that's not how we were born to do what we were born to do. And that can backfire badly. Uh, But can I just challenge you on that? There are people who say in the hunting gathering kind of uh, concept, especially in the carnivore community, that we started off by eating mainly meat and fat because vegetables were not available like three quarters of the year. So what do you say to that? 
Well, they were not available, but they were available in the rest of the year and you were eating them and they had fiber. Okay. Okay. And you were eating grains when you start farming. So we, we have to have some carbohydrate. Not, you, you cannot just go off. If you get, for example, in ketosis all the time, I think your metabolism can go really haywire. What happens to the gut if the gut does not have either of those three strains? So um, if it's- when you have an imbalance of the microbiota, you usually get in some sort of trouble. What imbalance happens when you're eating a carnivore diet, for example, or an extreme keto diet? Uh, you probably lose a lot of your bacteroides. If the person that's been eating meat, if they were to reintroduce carbohydrates, they might gain weight very quickly because they don't have that essential bacteria anymore? Yes, until they probably get the bacteria back because it's kind of like a cycle, right? Yeah. But you you want, how can I say, you don't want to have carbohydrates to be the basis of it, okay? Yeah. And But the, the trick is you want the carbohydrates to be complex. You don't want them to be simple. So like anything that's just glucose, that's just like you absorb directly, that that's not great, okay? You want it to be something that has to be broken down. Right. Okay, so for example, fibers in general, when you eat plants, you have a lot of uh, pectin. Pectin is broken down into a carbohydrate called galacturonate, and that's broken down by bacteroides, okay? Yes. And you will only absorb that to a degree, right? So you just want your carbohydrates to be complex, not simple. Uh, just to go back to, again, our three categories, we had the E. coli, which were often the bad guys. Uh, and uh, Well, they're not the bad. They're there for a reason. Okay. <laughs> okay. You just don't want them to be the majority. Right. But we want the bacteri- bacterioides to be the majority. Yes. And how you look like when you're healthy. And then the uh, Firmicutes, what's their purpose? So the Firmicutes, what they do a lot is uh, they they also break carbohydrates and they make sure that the intestine is uh, has very little oxygen, which is how they and bacteroides survive. That's why you have them as your majority. So Clostridium and bacteroides are anaerobic and you're the the part of your intestine where bacteria are, which is like the lumen, it's not close to your epithelium, it's before your mucus. That part's anaerobic and they keep it that way. Uh-huh. And the reason E. coli is a small piece of that is because E. coli can do both things. It can be aerobic or anaerobic, okay? So if you have any imbalance, so if you have a breach of the mucus, so if you have, for example, leaky gut, okay, that means your mucus, which protects your epithelium, became thinner, and all of a sudden you have bacteria close to your to your cells. That's not good, okay? And closer to your cells, you have more air, and because you have the bloodstream coming, and the bloodstream has air. Yes. And when that happens, which is what happens with people who have inflammatory bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, is that they have thinner mucus, so bacteria are coming closer, okay, there's more air, so you lose Clostridium and Bacteroides, and E. coli can respire that, so they go ahead and they bloom. Which is the reason why they all, a person with IBS might have a lot of diarrhea. Yes, they, they have a lot of diarrhea because bacteria in general, doesn't matter good or bad, they should not be touching yourself. There is a reason you have a barrier. That was the definition, I guess, of leaky gut, the impermeability of that barrier and then the mixing of anaerobic and aerobic bacteria. So how does that affect brain behavior? Well, every time you have bacteria closer to epithelium, 
okay? Whatever chemicals that they're making there have a bigger access to your bloodstream and your bloodstream systemically goes to your brain. Right, and if it's the E. coli which are able to bloom, they're the ones that create the uh, stress, the adrenaline. The adrenaline will make them bloom. Yes. Okay, and they they do make things. They they do change the landscape in the gut of what chemicals you have there that do not necessarily work in your favor if they are the majority. It's a balance, and we're trying to. I think scientists in general are now. Because working with you, you have to see the forest and the trees, right? So when you're working with the whole population, you're seeing the forest. But to get to what's really going on, you have to go to the trees. And that's the balance that everybody's trying to get to now. And technology is finally allowing us to get to that, to, to basically have something a little more informed in terms of this, this specific thing is what's leading to that. And instead of just like giving you like, well, if you have more of this, this is what happens. And because you don't know. We've talked now about how junk food uh, or even lack of carbohydrates can affect the gut. What about uh, medications like um, the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors? I think it must be one of the most widely prescribed drugs that exist. Losec, Pantaloc, medications for people who have indigestion. And that affects the gut bacteria, does it not? It does. Actually, there is actually a big warning for you if you're taking proton pump inhibitors that you shouldn't take it over a long, uh, an extended period of time. Yes. It increases the levels of clostridium and then you can get the bad one, uh, to bloom, clostridium difficile, uh, which cause, which is basically impossible to treat with antibiotics. Actually, if you give antibiotics, it gets worse and it's really deadly. And the only way to treat that is to, uh, you have to get stool from a, a person who is healthy. That's the fecal implant concept. Fecal implants, yes. Yeah. You have to, the only way to treat that properly is actually with fecal implants, which, you know, are controversial because FDA doesn't know exactly how to figure out how to regulate that. There's no way to uh, just take the bacteria out of somebody else's stool, essentially, and put that in a pill, eh? They do. Uh, so my understanding is that they do it two ways. You can have it in a pill and take it orally, or it can go like a supposit. They, they do it both ways. But uh, there is a lot of con controversy on the regulation of that, because so what if you give the microbiota that from a person that's going to make it worse, for example. Yes, right. Okay. And how can they know that for sure? How, how do you know that for sure that this is the right yeah. combination? So there's been a lot of effort from scientists to get to a formulation of which bacteria would take clostridium out, what's the, the key combination, and, and try to just formulate that combination into a pill. Okay. To, so you don't have to use stool, but you would have the right population to compete that guy out of there. What about just the plain use of antibiotics? As doctors, we're prescribing antibiotics like for anything and everything. And what is that doing to our gut biome and then potentially to our drug-seeking behavior? Well, with drug-seeking behavior, you're changing the microbiota and we're, in the, as I told you, in the infancy to see yes. which ones enhance versus which ones prevents. Yes, but okay. so we could be we could be devastating the good bacteria that would prevent drug seeking behavior. You could. The situation is when you have antibiotics, uh, it all depends on how long you take them and what kind of antibiotics you're dealing with. Mm. Okay. So if you're dealing with something that is not very broad spectrum, okay, 
and it's not for a long period of time, you have an issue with depleting some of the species in the microbiota, but they usually bounce back, okay? But if you're giving things like ciprofloxacin... Yes, which which is wide spectrum. Wide spectrum. That thing's a bomb. Yes. (laughs) Okay? And if it's for a short period of time, your microbiota kind of bounces back, but it depends how many times you're taking it. And certain species never come back, that there is this problem on like... On the, the big side, it kind of looks like it came back, but it didn't. And then if you have, if you're treating things like gastritis, which is Helicobacter pylori, that you go on a bomb of antibiotics for a long time, yeah. God forbid if you have tuberculosis, okay, it's a bomb of antibiotics that goes on for a very, very long period of time. Yeah, nine months, something like that. Yeah. So then, then you really get into a situation in which it's really hard to recover. So then that begs the other side of that question, which is, uh, well, what about just using probiotics? What do you, what's your opinion about nutritional supplements, probiotics? That's a hard one. So I've been through a lot of probiotics meetings. Okay. And so you have to, first of all, know which probiotics you're using because not all of them are benign. And there are some, I think Jim Versalovic at Baylor can tell you uh, very well how it can go bad sometimes if you get the wrong strain, okay? Because not going into the health food store, I'll just take that one. Some of them can be a little bit dangerous. And then there is the other part of like, they usually can't get a foothold in your gut for more than 12 hours. So they really, in the end of the day, uh, the data does not look, the data is not statistically relevant at this point. That's quite a statement. They keep saying that they just need more, more people, more people. But the, the thing is, it's, at least for now, it tastes really good. I love yogurt. Don't get me wrong. Oh, so you're uh, talking about yogurt. You're not even talking about the pills. Even the yogurt, we don't know. Yeah, they basically... So first of all, if you're going to take the pills, you need to know which strains are in there, okay? Because you can get a bad strain that can actually make you sick. Yeah. And they're not exactly FDA regulated, so you really don't know what you get, okay? Which is a warning, Make sure everything is FDA regulated because they are, they're going to go and they're going to make you be sure of what's, the, that what they're saying that's there is there. Okay. And the second thing is, uh, there is not too much evidence that they can actually, I don't know, maybe if you keep eating it every 12 hours or so. Yeah. But they don't stay long term. It's better to not destroy the gut bi- biome in the first place because it's very hard to replace them. Right. Be very careful with antibiotics. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. for example, if you have a viral infection, you shouldn't be treating that with antibiotics. Yes. Which unfortunately is what happens with children from day one. Like 90% of the ear infections are viral and yeah. they're giving them antibiotics for no good reason because they don't work against viruses. Yeah. Wrapping up then, um, I guess you were saying the Mediterranean diet looks like the best one for our gut. That's what that's what you're saying the research is suggesting? That's what most research, research suggests. Complex carbohydrates fiber so you have a lot of protein yeah you have complex fibers complex uh, carbohydrates and it's not very processed avoiding the simple carbohydrates sugar and whatnot will is overall healthy and yes although you can't say for sure that sugar creates drug-seeking behavior because we're not there yet. It certainly looks that way. But I summarize that it could, if we look at other stimulating drugs like cocaine, 
it could act in a similar way? I, I would say that we don't know yet. Yes. Okay. Okay. I think it's very dangerous to say that it will because we don't know yet. In closing then, um, thank you so much for talking about all of this research that you're involved in. What's next for you specifically in terms of research? Like what's your next project or what is it that you would like to continue to be involved in? So one of the things that we're thinking about looking at is that one of the effective treatments for addiction, apparently, is psychedelics. Oh my gosh. Okay. But the problem is psychedelics can be quite dangerous and they can also be modified by your gut microbiota. So what we want to do in the future is start looking at A, how do they get modified by the gut microbiota? And if we can find a way to get, uh, to disconnect the, the, the high problems and, you know, the hallucinations from the effects that it can have in the brain to actually curb addiction, because it's been shown, I think, that quite convincingly that it works. Really? That psychedelics but, without the psychedelic high actually can affect don't know. behavior. Yeah, we don't know if it's a psychedelic high or if it's just like yes. a transmission, right? Yes. So it would be nice to have something that would have not the psychedelic high, but fix the transmission in a way that you could curb addiction. Because it works very nicely for alcohol, cigarette addictions, even opioid addictions. They're looking a little bit into cocaine now. So, but the idea is to try to actually see if we can find a way to separate the bad from the good. <laughs> and the mechanism would be by manipulating the bacteria. Or so there is evidence that they are modified in the gut by bacteria. So first oh. we want to understand how they get modified yeah. and who is what, okay? And see if there's modifications. Because the, the, the thing that you ingest versus the thing that signals to your brain is not the same compound that you ingested. It gets modified. So... We want to try to to see if we can get into that to to try to find a way to curb addiction using that kind of thing, but without <laughs> having the issues. <laughs> okay, that's very interesting. All right, so last question. This is our signature question that we ask everybody at the very end. If you could tell a younger version of yourself a lesson that you've learned about the gut biome, what would it be? Some wisdom that you've achieved now, what would you tell your younger self? When I started as my younger self, I didn't think I paid that much attention to the biome itself. And I think that now I would tell myself to to really take that into consideration to a larger degree than I thought that existed then. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us and explaining a very complex topic. Yeah. Thank you. I hope it was helpful. Yes. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs> <laughs>